0: Hey, Rock Kids. Cancel your Phil Spector fan club membership and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 437 with guest Bob Beauchemin, recorded live Monday, March 30th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Audio copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Tellery combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.net controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who thinks Facebook has been secretly ported from PHP to PCP, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. This is Richard Campbell over in Vancouver. Over in Vancouver. Sight of psychedelic mushrooms that grow wild in your front lawn.
2: You've never gotten past that numb feet comment, have you?
1: No, that just, you know, every place has its geographical specialities, and that's yours. Congratulations. <laughs>
2: you can't mow lawn <laughs> in your bare feet in Vancouver.
1: <laughs> All right. I don't really know what to say banter-wise today, so let's just get right into Better Know a Framework. All right. Well, I guess I could say that uh, I went for a little walk right before the show down in my hometown, New London, Connecticut. And uh, I only had 20 minutes, but that's okay. It's a small town. Oh, uh, we're having too much fun here. So, Better Know Framework is a little spot I do on .net rocks every week where I shine a little flashlight in some dark and dreary core of the, corner of the in some dark and dreary corner of the .net framework where you can uh figure things out for yourself on your own time. This is not training, it's just a little here's where it is, here's what it does. So, we've been talking about um uh System.Windows.Controls. These are controls in both Silverlight and WPF, although one thing I do not have in the documentation is you know, which ones are supported where, so uh, you can guarantee that they're all supported in WPF, whether they're in Silverlight or not, I don't know. Uh, I should probably figure that out before I show, tell you the next one, though. Anyway, today we're talking about the Viewport 3D class, which provides a rendering surface for 3D visual content, and I'm guessing that's not in Silverlight. Yeah. Because Silverlight is not 3D. Yet. This control displays 3D content while providing properties consistent with 2D layout like clipping, height and width, and mouse events. When the control is included as the content of a layout element like canvas, specify the size of the viewport 3D by setting its height and width properties which is inherited from framework element. Viewport 3D provides hit testing at the level of the 3D scene, called the hit test method, to return detailed hit result information about the hit, visual, model, mesh, and point of intersection. On Microsoft Windows XP, if the display color quality is not set to 32-bit or 16-bit, the, the Viewport 3D might not render as expected. And there's some examples in there both in XAML and C#. Sharp. It's uh shows how to create a 3D scene in XAML and it's quite extensive. I got to say the more I look at the the documentation for WPF just in, you know, MSD on Microsoft.com, it's pretty darn good, pretty complete.
2: Yeah. It's really well thought out and it's very
1: rich. Very rich. You will, you know, it, it just takes sitting down and going through it to learn it. And there's a lot of stuff, but you know that's why you listen to dotnet rocks. And also the those
2: DNR TVs by Billy Hollis. That's some pretty foundational material if you want to get going on WPF. Yep. All right. You got an email for us? I do indeed. And it begins, dear sirs. How about that? I like it. (laughs) As a disclaimer, I must say that I'm a definite noob when it comes to software development. I'm a network admin trying to dabble in some code. Sure, I've written a whole bunch of Hello World apps. It seems like every time I decided to learn the trade, I'd start with whatever the newest thing was at the time and follow some screencast or blog post or article about building a super simple app that did nothing useful. For me, it's been super hard to make the jump from Hello World to something functional. It's an interesting problem. It is. I've been wanting to write in to you guys to thank you for all the knowledge you've passed on. I've been truly encouraged by listening to your show and emboldened by your enthusiasm for the topic. I'm currently working on my first real project. It's a little thing, but it's a start. So thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. And, you know, it's not about us. It's about the guests. The guests are the ones that bring on the knowledge. We just help them formulate their uh, sentences sometimes find them, question them and tease them when necessary. That's right. If you got any other questions or comments, send them to dotnetrocks@franklins.net. We uh we read, we read every email. We don't respond to every email, but if we do read yours on the air, we'll send you a dotnetrocks mug. Oh, hey, I got one more line. I got another paragraph from this oh. guy. You'll enjoy this. Oh, okay. But good for
2: calling out, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Carl. And that's actually what he wrote. Oh, yeah, Carl. When you were quizzing Tess Ferrandez, the first thing I thought of was the system clock. Ah, yeah. I had a similar situation with an app on the systems in my office. It was I was the IT guy that didn't have the correct time on the box, but it wasn't completely my fault. The CMOS battery on the board didn't work, and the system time would default. It took us forever to figure it out because when we first brought the machine online, it wouldn't work. Then after it was up for a while, it would work. And then it started working after the server would
1: pull the time server and it drove the devs completely nuts. Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, Richard, I th- I think right here I just had an epiphany that I want to start doing this on a regular basis because I love those little brain teasers. Yeah. You know, and basically what happened, if you listen to the Tess Fernandez show, she's a debugger extraordinaire. She's really into debugging. So I had this problem on a server uh, and I was trying to figure it out and I was just uh, giving her the facts and the facts and the facts and 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 we finally figured it out but it wasn't at all obvious at first but it's cool that people are listening along and try and you know this guy was saying ah i know what it is so we're going to do this on a regular basis and the the prize is uh, a mug we're going to ask you to send in your puzzlers at the risk of ripping off the car talk guys maybe we'll have to have another name but your uh, your send us send us in stories of problems that you encountered uh and tell us what the symptoms are and then we will uh ask you to send in your answers everybody to send in their answers if you think you know the right answer of what the problem actually was and how they solved it send that to dot net rocks at franklins.net and we'll pick every week from the correct answers and give that person a mug i like it awesome and richard before we introduce bob we got to announce the winner ...of this week's uh, tech ed Sweepstakes. It's Robert Negby from El Cajon, California. Congratulations, Robert. We'll be sending you a mug and putting you in the finalists' uh, list. Now, this week's question is, in the 64-bit question video recently posted on the .NET Rocks homepage, who did Mark Dunn accuse of writing the questions? If you think you know the answer to that, go to .NET Rocks.com. Click on the TechEd 2009 sweepstakes and uh, enter the question. Every Tuesday, we're going to pick a winner from the correct answers. That person gets a mug. On April 30th, we're going to pick a winner from those winners. That person gets a free trip to TechEd, hotel, airfare, and conference fee, all paid. Thank you very much. Good luck. All right. Well, that brings us to our guest. The real reason we're here, of course, is our guest, as I said before, Bob Beauchemin is our guest today. He is a database-centric application practitioner and architect, instructor, course author, writer, and developer skills partner for SQL Skills. Wow. And I thought I had a big resume. Over the past few years, he's been writing and teaching his SQL Server 2005 and 2008 courses to students worldwide through the Ascend program the Metro SQL Server 2008 Jumpstart Program, and Client-Centric Classes. He is lead author of the books A Developer's Guide to SQL Server 2005 and A First Look at SQL Server 2005 for Developers, author of EssentialADO.net, and has written articles on SQL Server and other databases, Database Security, ADO.net, and OLEDB for MSDN, SQL Server Magazine, and others, Welcome back to the show, Bob Boschman. Hi, Bob.
3: Hi. I can't believe you read all that. Thanks.
1: I can't believe I read it all either. <laughs> and I got a hangover. No, I don't, really. <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. So, uh, boy, it's been a long time since you've been on the show.
3: Yeah, about a year or so, I think.
1: Yeah, but you were just on our sister show in the IT world, uh, Run As Radio.
3: Uh, that's true, yes.
1: What were you guys talking about, Richard?
2: Uh, we were digging into the sort of IT side of spatial data, but things that the IT guys need to know about using SQL Server 2008, and and it, you know, there's so much to making spatial data successful that involves programmers that it it just made sense to uh, to to drag Bob over to uh, to DNR and get that done too.
1: Okay, and just a, a preface here: we were we introduced the topic of spatial data types uh, on .NET Rocks uh, just a little while ago with Jim Duffy. Um when and, and and tell us Bob basically what spatial data is and then we can go on from there.
3: To describe it pretty easily, um spatial data is just um location. And okay. so most people think of an address as a location. You know, you can, you know, have your address and most people think of an address as a location that includes the city, state, and zip code and street, that kind of stuff. But you can also model your address as a latitude and longitude. And if you do that, you can do some interesting spatial queries against it. You can also do visualization in conjunction with things like Virtual Earth.
1: Okay. So and and it's not just a a point, but you can actually from multiple coordinates map regions and areas and things like that, right?
3: Oh, sure. In fact, one of the one of the queries I did at um SQL Connections just recently was find me all the zip codes in a certain congressional district. So if you wanted to, for example, have figure out who to send um Mail to for a congressional campaign, you could pretty easily do that with a spatial query, and those are um, polygons. The three main spatial types, really, are points, line, strings, and polygons. Nice. And then there's multiples of those, multi-point, multi-line string, and then there's sort of a catch-all one called geometry collection.
2: Why do they discern the difference between them? Why? Because everything could be a geometry collection. Is it? Is it a performance problem?
3: Well, there's things that you might want to do. They map to the controls better. If you actually divide them up like that, the controls will have things like points and line strings and so forth as well. And so it's an easy one-to-one mapping between those and the the, the controls you usually use, or Virtual Earth, if you use that, that's a control as well.
2: So, I mean, point's pretty obvious. It's just a specific location. Is a line just two points, or is it more? A line
3: string is two or more points, yeah. Okay. And so a line string has things like properties like a length, whereas a point wouldn't have those. And a polygon has a property like an area, which a line string or a point wouldn't have.
2: The difference between a string and an area is that it connects back to itself to enclose an area.
3: Correct. In fact, as far as the spec is concerned, you can even have a line string that connects to itself, which is called a closed line string, or a polygon, which includes not only the line string around the polygon, but also the area inside the polygon. And you can do interesting queries with that, such as... um, find me all the points within a polygon
1: now is there a three-dimensional aspect to this as well or is it strictly 2d
3: the sql server implementation right now has 2d and it doesn't have 3d except for the fact that you can put in a z coordinate for these um you know geographic things
1: so that makes it 3d doesn't it
3: well you can put them in but none of the methods there's about 60 or 70 spatial methods on Ah. both of these data types geography and geometry and the methods don't take 3d into consideration So, for example, if you wanted to find the distance between your house and the mountain, you'd find the distance between your house and the bottom of the mountain, not the top of the mountain. In the next release, they're talking about supporting 3D in earnest. Okay. And these are vector types, too, rather than raster types. In other words, you're not getting the same kind of um, things that you get in virtual Earth as far as you can't see the trees and the houses and those kind of
1: things. Right. We were saying beforehand that... uh, Virtual Earth has a sort of a, uh, a not a complete implementation of spatial data types. Now, what do you mean by that? Because I thought SQL Server is what does the spatial types, but you're saying Virtual Earth doesn't take advantage of all of the API delivers? Is that what you meant?
3: Well, no. Originally, I thought that there was going to be built-in functionality in Virtual Earth to use SQL Server spatial data. Virtual Earth has its own database of spatial data and it has its own database of raster-type spatial data. So, in fact, it's much more a complete database of data than SQL Server has. But if you, for example, wanted to have the areas that were an outline of your um, sales districts, for example, um, you could get that into Virtual Earth, but there's no function in the Virtual Earth API called get data from SQL Server or add layer from SQL Server, which I'd like to see. You sort of have to program that yourself. It's, it's fairly easy to program. But as far as does Virtual Earth have spatial data types? Absolutely.
1: Oh, so the Virtual Earth support for spatial data types is different from SQL Server's support.
3: Correct. Right. It has it has raster based spatial data, and SQL Server has, uh, and it, of course it can support the vector space type spatial data that SQL Server has. What I was saying before was that. It doesn't really support complete integration to SQL Server. You sort of have to write that code yourself. But there's a couple people that have written that code, including me, and you can use it over and over again once you've done that. Okay. You just make a layer on Virtual Earth based on your data in SQL Server.
1: Now, why is that? Is it, why why the disconnect? Why two different implementations? Is it was it planned that way, or was it timing, or is it that Virtual Earth requires things that the SQL Server types don't allow, or?
3: Well, no, Virtual Earth has an entire spatial equivalent of a map of the world, including things like, um, you know, the ability to get you street directions. I which SQL Server doesn't provide out of the box. So it's
1: really the um, data, it's not the API. Correct. Yeah. And I they're
3: get. adding new visualizations. They're adding new, I forget what the, the real name for them is, but they're adding new um, scenery all the time in Virtual yeah. Earth. I gotcha. They announce every month, for example... What is the new, um, you know, visualizations that they're in Virtual Earth for this month? They were adding things like uh, 3D for different cities and stuff like that.
1: So, when you're using spatial data types in your own applications, um, wouldn't you want to tie them to the Virtual Earth database uh, if if you're if you're using locations on the Earth, which is pretty much everywhere? Well, and when when that. would you want to come up with your own? Uh, Maps, I suppose.
3: Well, there's two kinds of you know, there's two kinds of spatial data in SQL Server too: geometry and geography. Right. If all you're doing is laying out a house, or you're laying out, for example, your warehouse, and you want to keep track of where things are in the warehouse, that's pretty much you don't really care about the curvature of is. the earth. Got it. And so you would just define one corner as zero zero and go from there. You can measure in feet or inches or, you know, meters, whatever you'd like.
1: I see. So, and this is what we were talking about before a little bit with Jim Richard. Um, right. Making plans, you know, it, this would be great for a sort of uh, architecture kind of application where you wanted to store all the data in a, in a queryable, consistent place.
2: Right. But I, but I really you, like this
1: idea of, I mean, if you
2: talk about a big warehouse. Liter- knowing the location of stuff, yeah. uh, inventory in the warehouse is not a trivial thing. Like, you that could be a long, long way. If you, if you have to just thumb through things, it's hard to do. So I think it's interesting, the idea, that I could have a, a database that actually say, it's on this shelf in this location kind of thing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you, you could do it in that way. And you could also conceivably plot it on the Earth, too. And you could you know, use a GPS to figure out where things are. That's a sort of different way of doing it. But, but normally, you'd want to know a little bit finer than that.
1: Well, plus, GPS doesn't work indoor all that well. That's, uh, true. that's true. Yeah. Uh the combination though of smart tags and the spatial data types I think would be an, a nice way to to keep track of things pretty much in real time.
3: Hmm. I'd never thought of the concept of smart tags with it but
2: yeah. I hope you
1: could do that. What am I thinking of? IR tags, right, Richard?
2: Oh,
3: IR tags. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Oh,
2: uh, or you know you're talking uh RF tags. RFID, so you... yeah, RFID yeah. that's yeah. what I mean.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean they're they're using those now. They're using RFID, but uh that just tells you what you have in stock. It doesn't really tell you where in the place it is. That's it's right. it'd cool. be
3: nice to keep track of that,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, and then you get back to that whole Z axis thing that I could have a coordinate and how high up the shelf it was.
1: Uh wait a minute, there is one uh factor that kills this whole theory. Nobody nobody has a warehouse anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There're no more warehouses. I Cynical, thought everybody had a warehouse, man. nobody had a store. <laughs> everything's gone.
3: <laughs> I've been going on some of the bookstores and trying to find books, and you see that there's, the books are there, but they're not in the bookstore itself. They're in the warehouse. Right. right. Every, everything's in the warehouse nowadays.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's because the stores are all empty.
1: Right. <laughs> Just-in-time inventory means it's all in the warehouse.
2: Now, I mean, the reality, of course, is if we if we just store data in the database as it's on this shelf in this bin, we don't really need the spatial data types for that.
3: No, that's true. And you could store latitude and longitude of points on the Earth, too, as doubles or as decimal data types. And you don't really need spatial data for that, too. Right. But if you wanted to know the distance between two things or... Try and lay out, for example, how you would go through your warehouse to pick things off the shelf.
2: Right. I Say was that, just that thinking that was, you know, a you, picking you order is awesome.
3: For, yeah, you could make up maps for yourself to do that.
2: Well, and, and also breaking up the. So you've got, you know, a thousand items to pick and you've got ten guys to pick it. How do you split up that pick list so that they all finish, you know, rel- relatively efficiently?
3: hmm. Yep. Exactly. And besides that, there's everything you can do with the Earth. There's all the things that you can do with your business data and that, you know, the earth, you can, you know, in other words, you could report, for example, one of the things I've I've found at the, or I heard about at the SQL Connections Conference was the fact that the next release of SQL Server will support um, a map control in SQL Server reporting services. And so you could conceivably bring up this map control, plot your um, sales areas against it, and show the sales for each sales area on a nice map. So the map control will, you know, will be out in the next version of reporting services. Wow, cool! So you could do that with it as well. Yeah. So you have the Virtual Earth type programming that you could do with it. In fact, one of the things they announced at MIX is a Silverlight control for Virtual Earth. So now you can use Virtual Earth control with Silverlight. There's an ASP .NET web control for Virtual Earth, so you can integrate with SQL Server. I think it took me about seven lines of code to integrate with SQL Server, so no big deal there. And you can also um, use it with n- controls that have nothing to do with web, like the Dundas map control and the upcoming Microsoft map control. So there's tons of ways that you can
1: visualize this stuff. So let's get into the developer experience of getting started with spatial data types. Okay. What uh, what do we have to do?
3: So pretty much you can, um, as a developer, you if you have SQL Server installed on your machine, you already have this. If not, you can go and download a .NET library that includes the spatial data types from SQL Server, and you can program with them, with them directly. Okay. Now, there are no controls now that have um, built-in support for the spatial data types in SQL Server. However, the Microsoft Map Control and Reporting Services will have it coming up. And actually, there's a control that I found from a company called ThinkGeo, which actually has built-in support for Microsoft SQL Server data. Basically, you're talking about getting the data back from the database, putting it in a data table, pointing the control at a data table, and say render. Basically, hmm. that's that's the programming model. Nice. Now, in addition to that, you can have libraries that um, layer over top of the SQL Server data types. So you could do, for example, your own client-side version of a spatial index, or your own client-side version of spatial queries based upon the sets of the SQL server data types. Again, you'd have to have an array list or something to store them in.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors. So say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight, an incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart. Yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET Ajax suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep. Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern Ajax applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And you were saying that there are some
2: third-party map controls so that I, can, that I can use the spatial data to actually display all this stuff in? I'm just thinking an offline app could still do map work.
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. This, the ThinkGeo control does that automatically, or if there's something in beta that does that now, the Microsoft map control they showed at, um, you know, at SQL Connection not only supports or will support SSRS, the reporting services, but also you could use that as a standalone map control as well. The Dundas map control supports the spatial data of any kind, but you have to draw it yourself on the control, which isn't that hard, really. Of the, say, 60 or 70 methods that are on the spatial data types in SQL Server, a lot of them are for drawing. You can have methods that go through the geometries in a specific collection or go through and get point by point so you can have these controls draw the stuff for you, if you'd like.
2: Definitely. Well, then these, these are interesting problems just trying to figure out how to do this. I think many of the apps that I want to build, I don't even really want to render on a map. It's just the idea that, uh, like you say, generating the pick list. Here's the most efficient way to do this or generating a list of, of, of customers based on a central location. Here's, you know, the, the 15 people closest to you. That doesn't take any map rendering, per se. It's just organizing data in a way that uh, takes into account spatial data.
3: That's true, and there's a couple ways to do that. You can actually, the the 15 people nearest to you is called a nearest neighbor query, and you can implement a nearest neighbor query in a .NET language, or you can do it in Transact SQL. There'll be a really nice one coming out in one of the upcoming SQL books that do a nearest neighbor query pretty quickly in Transact SQL. But, in, and you can return the nearest neighbors without doing anything else with them geographically. You don't need to plot them on a map. However, when you, usually when you get geographic stuff back, people really want to see them on the map.
2: Yeah, I, I get that. Indeed. Um, when you do that nearest neighbor plot, mm-hmm. is that as the crow flies or would that actually be like driving directions? How would you do the driving directions?
3: SQL Server really doesn't have driving direction built into SQL Server, but you could conceivably use the Virtual Earth web services to leverage the information that they provide and use the geocoding service and the routing service to actually get back routing directions, but you'd get it back from Virtual Earth. In other words, you could store these directions in SQL Server and you can have starting points in SQL Server, but Virtual Earth will actually tell you what's the best route from here to there. There's no stored procedure built in a SQL Server for that.
2: Right. And, of course, that, that string, that spatial string type is driving directions. Yeah. From this point to this point to this point to this point to this point is exactly what it would be.
3: Yep. Although Virtual Earth actually returns this back as chunk of XML.
2: Ah, so then you have to convert it into points.
3: Right. So it's a pretty nice synergy between all these products or between all these APIs.
2: Yeah, you just my head's just spinning now with all the possibilities of like storing uh frequent paths and, and optimal directions. It's just this has got huge potential.
3: Oh, sure. Well, of yeah. the people that I had at my pre con, at a day long pre con at SQL Connections last week. Yeah. And let's see there were people from insurance companies that wanted to have this information for insurance claims. Um and I told them that um they just used this with the fires in Australia the big Fires, the the forest fires that were in in uh, around Melbourne area, yes. To basically see what the houses were that were within the fire area, and what the houses were that were in jeopardy, and they could, as an insurance company, then use that to figure out you know where who to contact for claims. Um, had somebody from a company that wanted to be able to see their um, shipments as they were being shipped across the ocean in real
1: time. Nice. Nice. And
3: conceivably, you could do that too. Um, there was somebody I ran into in Europe last year that wanted to use this to try and plot the um, which way the birds would fly because they were afraid of birds flying into um, windmills that they were using to generate power. Like, um,
1: Why aren't they more afraid of birds flying into airplanes, <laughs> jet <laughs> engines, because they tend <laughs> to bring them down? Bird <laughs> flies into a windmill, dead bird, no problem. Windmill's fine. Flies into a plane, everybody dies
3: yeah nobody that was died. That was,
1: yeah oh well but um, if
3: they you know they they could conceivably see which birds are on a flight path from which you know around which airport something like that
2: yeah, is there a way to store sort of vector data that here's the location and this is the way it's moving as well?
3: I don't understand that what's the way it's moving
2: so you know say an aircraft it's at this coordinate at this altitude at this velocity, I guess that's just another data right a point of data.
1: I think you could just calculate that in a stored proc, perhaps.
3: yeah, or you could if you had if you had uh, plots like that, you could plot them as multiple rows and then do things with SQL against them.:
2: yeah, I, I, well, I could see string just storing another column that is the speed and then using this string type to just additional points of information at this time it was now here, at this time it was here, and so forth, say in five minute increments.
3: Oh, sure. So you could have a persisted computed column based on a user-defined function, something like that.
2: Yeah, this is a whole other angle of thinking, is this idea of of strings of data as time
3: series. Yep, that's that, yep, that's another way to think about it.
2: Yeah, possibilities, definitely possibilities. When you start thinking about the getting away from the geography, getting into the geometry model, start talking about modeling factory floors, how parts are moving on the floor.
3: Oh, sure.
1: There is no end to the amount of fun you can have with this stuff.
2: Well, when you get into time and motion studies, you start figuring out that the total distance that a given part moves directly affects its cost. So what if you were able to query that?
3: Yeah, that, would, that should be fairly easy with a regular relational database.
2: Yeah, I have a string of points that was the motion of this part. Give me the sum of the distance it moved between the points.
3: That's just the user-defined function.
2: Wow, because that's really, yeah. really hard to do by hand. I remember doing that stuff for a factory.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, really what you're doing with this stuff is in SQL Server is you're keeping track of it. You're making sure it's consistent with the other data. You're making sure it's in the same place as the other data. And then you can use it just like a regular relational data type. Other than that, anything you can do with a relational data type, you can do with the spatial data types. It's easy to write .NET stored procedures that use the spatial data types or even SQL store procedures that use the spatial data types, if you're happier with those. So what you get out of it really is the storage, the query, the integration with the rest of the data, and the indexing. There's some really nice spatial indexes that um, I've done some queries that take, oh, say two or three hours without the spatial index. You can knock down a sub-second with the spatial index. So that's a nice feature of SQL Server there.
2: Yeah. I, and I'm just trying to imagine how the indexing works on these data types. Like That, that to me, sounds really challenging.
3: Oh, there's there's well-known math, mathematical algorithms to do this. And they've used one of these mathematical algorithms. They break the area. And if it's a geometry data type, you actually give it the area that you want to break up. You give it right. the bounding box for that area. If it's geography, they will actually break apart the entire world. And then they'll break apart the entire world into squares. It's called tessellation and you record which squares are covered by which points or which polygons. And that's basically the spatial index.
2: Interesting. And it's all about just trying, just like any other index, breaking down the total set of data into smaller chunks so you can find things you need.
3: Right. It, the, the, basically, the point of the index is to make sure that you have to do these expensive spatial operations, like intersection, um, as as little as possible. So say, for example, you want to find, I think somebody, this is a well-known example that people always use. Um, Suppose you want to find all of the roads that intersect with New London, Connecticut. Hmm. Well, you can get rid of all the roads that don't intersect with Connecticut right away. And so then at that point, you're only running the intersection algorithm around that subset of the roads that go through Connecticut at all to see if they go through New London. If you can get rid of 90% of the roads just off the bat, then the calculations go down by orders of magnitude. Right. So that's basically the point between, you know, with the spatial indexes.
2: Now, I wonder if we're headed towards a time where the database will actually be the best way to do stuff like road route calculations.
3: Mm, it might be. I mean, it's, it's, it's a place to store the data. Right now, they're trying not to put everything in the database, seeing right. that maybe the virtual earth services can do the same thing and do it just as well. They certainly wouldn't, you know, they, they do have a rendering piece in SQL Server Management Studio, but you'd never do the rendering that way. No. So specialized specialized databases that you could call out to to get routing information maybe faster than you could store yourself would be a good idea.
2: Hmm. Well, and the idea that you would use SQL Server as the storage for a road route calculation uh, app. Sure, for the, re-
3: for the repository rather right. than to actually do the calculation itself.
2: Yeah, you don't want to do the calculation, but you do want it to reference the data. And I, I, I'm curious as to how... You know, the, the, the MAP software of the world currently stores its data that it does routing as quickly as it does when you think about the insanity of what it takes to figure out a route.
3: Yeah, I think they're just well-known mathematic algorithms, and they just store it on some huge servers.
2: And then we just saw yet another story of a guy who was following his GPS more than he was looking at the
1: road and almost drove off a cliff. Well, they have the warnings <laughs> in the on the GPSs. The yep. you know the the first screen you have to actually say, Okay, I agree. I will not look at this while I drive. Oh really? <laughs> Which it's wow. really crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Oh,
3: as is the stuff you can get GPSs for. You know, the items you can get GPSs for. Right. I was feeling I'm, I've been feeling old lately, right? I think I might have told you this one already. And I found on the web that you can get a GPS for your walker if you want to. No way. <laughs> yes. So if you're if you're an old person with a walker and you've fallen and you can't get up, that's where you are, right? <laughs> you can get walkers with built-in GPS.
1: Well, now, <laughs> why don't you just have a walker on your uh, GPS on your keychain? If it's on your walker, you're walking with you. Why not just have a personal GPS?
3: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have RFID for people.
1: <laughs> I'd like to permanently solder one of those into my daughter's cell phone so I could just, like, you know know where she is all the time
3: oh that would be good yeah i bet they'd like that <laughs>
2: yeah well they these apps exist now have you seen google latitude yeah it's chilling really the first time i fired it up and connected with a friend of mine i watched him
1: drive home
3: oh yeah Wild. You, you have that, that kind of application yeah i've seen those too
1: george orwell was a few years off i think
3: well, there was a guy a couple of years ago named Casey Chestnut that did an application that I really liked. He did it with SQL Server Notification Services and, um, you know, one, one of those handheld devices with a GPS on it. Basically, you could see where he was at any point in time. You could look on his website and see where he was. And the premise behind it that he thought of was that as you're walking by a store, if the store bought into this as well, it could pop up on your cell phone and say, by the way, You wanted rock and roll tickets to see this particular rock and roll concert. We have them,
1: Bob. Don't give these bastards any of these ideas. Come on, (laughs) I don't want that crap on my phone.
3: I'm sure if I thought of it, like there's a million people that have thought
1: of it, and I didn't. I know they have. I know it's not a new idea, but still, don't do that.
3: (laughs) Don't do that. I don't care if you
1: do it. Just don't do it to me. Oh, the
3: world runs on advertising, though, right?
1: Oh, oh that's, okay. That's the
3: whole idea of oh. advertising and consumption, right?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know.
3: Who could have one of the biggest software players that started out selling ads on a search engine,
1: right? It's just a matter of targeting, right? I mean, the stuff that we sell on our show is of interest to our listeners. The stuff that, um, if I'm just walking by some store, if I'm walking in through a mall and my Phones going bing, 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 It's like I'm here, I'm looking at the store. I will decide if I want to come in or not, you know, oh I that's know. true yeah. it's kind of it could, it could really get annoying if if it was out of hand, yeah, but if
3: you've indicated, for example, that you want to know the next time your favorite rock and roll group is in town, well, that's or different. if you're in a city where they are, yeah you that's know? different. Somebody told me when when I went up to Sequel Pass last year. I realized that there was a group that somebody had told me about was being this wonderful rock and roll group that was there at the same time. And it's like, if you knew that, you could have bought tickets. Yep. Or if you knew that, you could have planned your plane to get there a day earlier so you could go see them.
2: Yep. Yeah, I don't know how keen I am to use this app, but the reality is that's just more targeting.
3: Yep, that's what it is. Targeting down to the minute. And, of course, the cell phone is just like anything else, right? You can always turn them off.
2: What? Now you're talking crazy talk <laughs> there, Mr. Beauchemin. That's
1: man. crazy talk. Crazy oh, like
3: talk. The, my goodness. <laughs> and you guys don't turn the TV channel either when it's something you don't watch. Well, I just
1: don't watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> TV is an assault of the of the senses.
3: Oh, people are amazed to find that my cell phone is off 90% of the time. It's like, I called you on cell phone. It's like, that. Yeah, that's a convenience for me. Yeah. Right. You know, if I'm out on the road and I get a flat tire, that's a convenience for me. It's not an open, you know, end to my life there. Bob? Yes.
1: You're old. It
3: yeah. It could be. Yep. Yeah. I
1: mean, well, at I mean, least that.
3: maybe I'll have my GPS-enabled walker in the next couple of years. <laughs> so if I hurt myself, <laughs> you guys can just come along and scoop me up. <laughs>
1: I've fallen, I can't get up, and I'm at the corner of State and Huntington. Yep. But, yeah. but the Walgreens has got a great deal on Wrigley's gum.
3: <laughs> yeah, yep. exactly. You could run over there and get the pills that you need right now, That's as long right. as you're there in the first place. Oh, well.
2: Funny. All right. uh. So let's uh, let's explore further. Uh, everyone tells me that the key thing here is that you have address data, then you have geographical data. What does it take to use an address?
3: Oh, that's easy. So there's a geocoder service. In fact, there's many of them. You pick the one you want to use, and then you format your address in a certain way. You send it up there along with the locale, and you get back the latitude and longitude. Or there's reverse geocoding, which basically... You give it the latitude and longitude, and it'll tell you what building is there, if there's a building there. Interesting. So that's just a it's a a service in Virtual Earth. And, in fact, for the the seminar that I was doing, I looked up other APIs that you could do this with. MapPoint has its own web service type SDK with SOAP-based web services. Um, MapQuest has a bunch of developer APIs in a variety of languages. Google Maps has uh, APIs itself as well as Google Earth. And Yahoo also has APIs. So you can basically just choose the one that's the best or that you trust the most and um, use the mapping API from them. Now, another thing that is kind of interesting is you do have to have the API that covers your area. So, for example, I built a store procedure that you put an address to and had people yell out their addresses and somebody yelled out one in Australia. Well, in order to do that, I would have to use a mapping API that supported Australia.
2: There's not one that just supports everywhere?
3: Not necessarily. They don't support... They wouldn't support certain countries or certain continents, things like that. In fact, most of the APIs will give you a list of specifically where they support on a grid. So I could get get an address in the U.S. pretty easily from any of those APIs. If I wanted an address in Australia, I'd have to call the APIs with a different locale. Use your maps for Australia. But if I wanted to get an address in... Oh, I don't know... someplace where the APIs wouldn't support then I'd sort of be out of luck. And each one sort of lists the places that they do support. And of course, then there's the idea of getting the address in the language. So, say you're doing um, reverse geocoding, you may want to get the information in the language that you're using as well. Right. I saw, yeah. I saw somebody that the post-up about a month ago that said the virtual earth maps for Japan actually only show the, the labels in Japanese. And it's like, Yeah, that's what they should do.
2: Yeah, that kind of makes sense, actually.
3: (laughs) Well, but if I'm an English-speaking person, that might not be true.
2: Yeah, well, and I'm trying to get somewhere in Japan, which I've done. It's hard.
3: Hmm. Right. Well, that's another thing, too. Some places um, don't have um, increasing numbers on the streets. So the street numbers, because the streets have evolved over time, have nothing to do with the position on the street. Street number, you know, house number twenty would not necessarily be next to house number twenty-one. Right. right, and so they have to take that stuff into consideration as well.
2: Well, there's also places like in London. You can be walking down the street, and it, every block it changes names.
3: Yep, that's another one. Right, and you can also have you know street and road and place, and every city has their own way of encoding things. Right, like in the when I moved to Seattle, I was sort of shocked to find out that all of the streets had. N E for Northeast or S W for Southwest at the end of the street name hmm. rather than in the middle, like everybody else does.
2: Where <laughs> everybody else huh. you'd seen.
3: Where everybody else I've seen does, sure.
2: I know yeah, so. in Calgary they, they put it way at the end. Uh yeah. in, in Vancouver they put it at the middle. <laughs> they put it where they put it at the beginning.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it just depends on where you are. So all this stuff is fairly difficult to do, but not impossible. And so that's why they have these big services and databases, and you have to know you know what you're looking for.
2: Well, there's also the, just the whole validation side of, is this an accurate address?
3: That's true, too. And you can do that manually. Or there actually is a component that does bulk geocoding for SQL Server integration services. You feed it a set of addresses, and then it will send you back either a latitude and longitude or an indicator of... Um, The fact that I got more than one hit for that address, Um, you know, here's the error that I got back when I put that address in, something like that.
2: Right.
3: One of the things that I tried to do, actually, because I've lived a lot of places in my life, is just for fun, I tried to geocode a row in a database table for every place that I'd ever lived in my life. However, some of those places have been torn down (laughs) and no longer exist. Wow.
2: We don't think about this, but there are times when addresses actually are get unused. They're no longer available.
3: Oh, yeah. They tear down apartment houses and build new ones yep. just like it's going out of style. Sure.
1: I do that any time I'm in a city where I used to live. I try to drive by and see, the, see if the old place is still there. I
2: thought yeah. you were going to say I always burn down the buildings I move out of, but okay. No, no.
1: That was the next thing I was going to say. You didn't wait <laughs> for it. <laughs> You're just impatient. <laughs> this is the I problem with sharing the same brain.
3: In, in doing that exercise, too. Like, when I was little, I used to take the train from Old Greenwich, Connecticut to a school that I went to in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah. And it turned out that the Old Greenwich Railroad Station, which is what I used to sort of find my house there to, to actually be able to geocode the house, the Old Greenwich train station has now been declared a National Historic Monument. And I thought it was just an old decrepit train station. Wow. So you find out interesting things as you're going along, too. But the idea is you can store the stuff in a database. You can correlate it with other stuff that you have there. And, you know, the API for it can either be visual or just a number. Right. Just like any other kind of data.
2: It's interesting. What about well, when you get into more, like, generalized coordinate systems or, or even stuff like breaking up a neighborhood into lots.
3: Mm-hmm. That's that's like cadastral data. So that exists for most places. You can usually, if it's a U.S. place, you can get it on the web. Right. from that city itself. And you can use it to answer interesting questions like, does my lot overlap your lot? Or does my land claim of my lot, what they said was my lot, overlap what you said was your lot? Right. Before you do things like tear the place up to put in something new in your own backyard, you might find out that your, you know, point that you thought was part of your yard is actually your neighbor's yard. So people use geographic data for that all the time.
2: Just building a fence can be tricky. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other data that's geo encoded available. I think this is, maybe this is just a U.S. phenomenon. I don't know how it is elsewhere, but if you run into stuff like census data, like when you start thinking in this, these terms, if you're building an app like this, you want to figure out, you know, finding new customers in a particular area. Can you get at census data fairly easily?
3: It depends on where you live, like you said, but in the U.S., that stuff is available fairly easily. In other places, I think like in the U.K., um, you have to pay for a lot of it. Right. But in the U.S., you can actually, because I think it's it's related to some kind of law that there was, that if you had a specific data that was gathered with the public money, it had to be available to the public. And so you can go and you can download a ton of what I call spatial reference data, things from every state, things you know, things from every county. Um, somebody just had a database that they gave me that was a, the, the town of Bellevue, Washington, with all the different layouts of all the different, you know, Streets Mm. in Bellevue. So, yeah, that stuff is pretty easily available. I call it spatial reference data. And you can import it into SQL Server pretty easily, although there's nothing that comes with that allows you to do that. If you can get it in a shapefile, which is the standard way to get it, there's a a well-known program um, that's out by a guy named Morton Nielsen, I believe, that's called Shape to SQL that imports shapefiles in the SQL Server. And so that's a pretty easy thing to do. You can also use um, you know, commercial software to do that. The, the commercial software that I always use to do this is one called FME, and it can pretty much import any format that you can think of in the world into SQL Server. Already? Yeah.
2: Wow. I mean, it, the say, product here. hasn't been out that long, but people have already built these sort of tools.
3: Oh, these guys had built, the FME guys had built the tools during the beta version. Wow. They, they had it because, you know, that's really what people want is these reference data sets. And so that's a real easy way to get them is to just download them and put them in.
2: Hmm. Well, all right. I'm looking at uh, census.gov, which is the U.S. Census Bureau, and all the huge amount of data that's available for download here, district summary files, population density files, like pretty much everything you could think of.
3: Is oh, it- yeah. Or the one that I that I was able to get for free, it's, it's freely, avail- you know, freely available on the web. It's not that I could get it. Um, it's called the Geonames Data Set. And that thing has six million points of interest throughout the world. Wow. And it's a free data set. Basically it has so many points of interest that on um, I, I I showed people at the conference this upcoming add in for SQL Server data that's gonna be in MapPoint. It's an add in for MapPoint. And yeah. basically I keyed in my address, it came up with the Map Point map for my address. This is all offline, right? I have no web connection to do this. And then I went to my Geonames database and I said, show me everything that appears on the map that also appears on Geonames. And it could show me the parks, the schools, um, the TV, st- you know, studio reception, um, what do you call it, antennas that were close by, mm-hmm. all the major points of interest. Wow. And of course, if you and, and that was for free. And the nice thing with the spatial indexing was against the 6.6 million rows worth of data, the thing was almost sub-second response. Wow. This That's is on amazing. my wimpy little laptop. So imagine what you could do if you had a nice server.
1: <laughs> Have you ever done uh, geocaching, just to get off on a total different rant? I was going to
2: say what's, exactly the same thing. What's geocaching?
1: So geocaching, Richard could probably explain it better, but geocaching is a sort of a, um, a scavenger hunt that you that you play uh, all over the world where... You, uh, you go to some place. You find longitudes and latitudes in some sort of container, like under a tree, in a rock wall somewhere, and there's maybe a a, a jar or something like that. And you open it up, and on that in the jar is a piece of paper with another lat Latin long. And there's usually that's actually usually like a box with uh notebooks in it. So people write, you know, in the in the journal their experiences and then leave that for the next person to come along. It's usually fairly well hidden.
3: Oh, I've heard of this, but I've never done it myself.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's just because GPSs are now accurate enough that you can get really, really close to a location. Yeah. And then they disguise the item. Uh, if you go to geocaching.com, there's a whole website to it. They say there's like 760,000 active geocaches. Oh, wow. In, in the yep. world. There's tons here in Vancouver. I, I was just stunned to find them i i was laughing because one of the ones my friend showed me the guy had actually made up a piece of metal that looked like the cover plate on a on a, a light standard yeah and so the thing was in plain view it was magnetically stuck to the side of the light standard
1: oh that's awesome but unless you
2: knew and pulled it off you'd never know it was a geocache
1: That's That's got to be so much fun. I mean, if you have all the money to burn and uh, don't really know where to go, uh, but you want to travel, I think that's probably a good hobby for you.
2: Well, yeah, there's the geocaching least. that's tripping around the world. The friend of mine who got me, showed me this thing, he just happened to have an eight-year-old boy as a, as a son – and, you know, they're looking for something fun to do and tromping around in the bushes looking for a, a jelly jar full of note uh, with a notepad in it. It was, was a lot of fun. And they do three or four in a day.
1: Yeah, I suppose you could just do them around your place. There's no saying that I was I – was, uh, when I heard it, it was in the context of people who, you know, travel around the world and, and you know, find them in various yep. places.
2: There is that element. But just in your local neighborhood, there's lots of them. That's cool.
3: Like, and if you could suck them off the web and do queries on them, you could, if you were traveling, you could just find the ones around wherever you were.
2: Yeah. Yep. I went to the geocache site. I typed in my postal code, which you Americans would call a zip code, and it showed me 10 within one mile of my home. Is it geocaching.com? geocaching.com.
3: Yeah, now see, it probably used a spatial database and a spatial index to do that.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. But that's the you know the part of the point of this whole thing is that that we've got this infrastructure everywhere now. Uh, I think the other you know other apps that I think are getting hip, hip is this idea of knowing where all of your vehicles are in your fleet all the time.
3: Oh sure, yeah,
2: absolutely. And we talk about intelligent pathing, figuring out a, a courier's route. That's huge business. That's gasoline you're
1: burning there.
3: Yeah, right. If you could save so much gas, you could save your you know company that much money.
1: Well, here's one right in New London. There you go. Cool.
3: Got to go over with this GPS to it right now. (laughs) 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 Well, the other thing from a consumer point of view I've seen a lot of is um, geocoding and cameras or people that do geocoding of pictures that they've taken. So there are websites where you can go and download programs. In fact, there's one from Microsoft that you can go into the metadata of the picture and put the latitude and longitude where you took the picture. And so there's an application that I showed a um, couple times called the Spatial um, Picture Album, which hasn't come out on CodePlex yet, but it's about to come out pretty soon, is what I've heard. And the Spatial Picture Album basically takes a bunch of these geocoded pictures, and then we'll plot them either on a map or on virtual Earth, and you can zoom in, and you can make different kinds of picture albums. So I always show this to people everywhere I go, because I always take pictures everywhere I go. And the geocoded the the g p s on the camera thing makes it automatic. You don't have to go in and geocode anything as soon as you take the picture it knows where you took it so I think yep. that's kind of a cool
1: that is you know, a very cool aspect application
3: of it. for it too sure
2: when you got to think this is the way right i mean it's it, in the immediate future in the next five years we're all going to be carrying a device that is our cell phone that has g p s
3: and a good camera in it,
1: yeah, and it's yep. got a nuclear reactor in it details some power
3: and i'd be happy with that as long as i could turn it off whenever i wanted to <laughs> <laughs> oh he's Otherwise on it you're not talking or well you're talking some science fiction movie where they'll come and get me in a certain amount number of years because i've outlived my usefulness right what was the name of that movie
1: <laughs> bob we're just about out of time is there anything we've missed or anything that you want to uh, shout out or mention before we go
3: no, I think that we're good. Um, just like I said, for a SQL server, all you have to do is get the freely downloadable .NET library from um, off of the SQL server. I forget what they're called. Add in the SQL server, something like that. And you can use the spatial data with or without.
1: All right. That's it. Bob, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you.
3: Oh, yeah. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys, too. Thanks for having me.
1: You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.